Blog Talk Radio. J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. We will be exploring the nature of the progressive movement in the United States going back through the 20th century and even the beginning or the end of the uh, 19th century. And we're going to be doing this by way of speaking with Dr. Peter Dreyer, who is the E.P. Clapp Distinguished Professor of Politics and the Chair of the Urban Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College on the West Coast. He has written a book most lately called The Hundred Greatest Americans of the 20th Century. And uh, in speaking with him before the show, I got some sense of how difficult it was for Dr. Dreyer to select among the many people who really qualified as progressive thinkers and actors in the 20th century. And this book actually grew out of an article that he had published in The Nation where he selected the 50 greatest Americans of the 20th century and received so much feedback, so many phone calls and emails saying both, why did not you include this one and that one, and how dare you include this one and the other? So he decided to double the number and uh, has come up with this book. Peter is uh, additional to being a teacher and a scholar, has been for many years a journalist, continues to be a community organizer himself, a government official having worked for the uh, mayor of Boston for a number of years. He writes frequently for the L.A. Times, The Nation, American Prospect, and The Huffington Post. His articles have been published in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Boston Globe, Newsday, The Chicago Tribune, The Philadelphia Inquirer, New Republic, Dissent, Washington Monthly, The Progressive, and on it goes. It's a truly stellar uh, record he has in speaking his mind, and it's a progressive voice, which I so much appreciate. And those of you who listen to A Better World with any kind of regularity know that uh, our voice is very progressive, to use a phrase, not the one that I'm necessarily most 
happy with, but it does uh, touch upon the idea of moving from the status quo into a more novel and truly more humanitarian, hopefully also ecologically minded kind of world. It's to push society forward. And Peter has commented on that rather well in this book, subtitled A Social Justice Hall of Fame. And uh, I think it's a, a noble enterprise you've set on here, Peter, and I'm glad to have you on the show today. Thank you, Mitch. It's been uh, it's good to be here. Good. Excellent. I'm so glad. So what is it that really inspired you to do this in the first place? Well, you know, I've been teaching college for uh, many years, for over 30 years, and um, yes. I've, been, I've worked with lots of activists over the years, uh, organizers and activists in various social protest movements, uh, community organizing and unions, environmental groups, and so forth. And I discovered that, um, you know, very few of them know anything about the history of, of the movements that they're either involved with or sympathetic to. Uh, they don't mm -hmm. know whose shoulders that they stand on when they're fighting for uh, a living wage or for better housing conditions or uh, for cleaning up uh, environmental hazards. And, um, you know, if we don't know where yes. we've been, then it's hard to know where to go. Um, and so, um, you know, and also I, I think it's important for most people to, to realize uh, that Michael Harrington once said, the, who's one of the people in my book, he once said that if you're going to be a social justice activist in this country, you have to be a long-distance runner. You can't be a sprinter. That change takes time, and a lot of young people yes. are, are very impatient and think, uh, you know, a lot yeah. of the Occupy Wall Street folks, you know, if something, if the if the politicians or the corporate uh, uh, lobbyists don't respond uh, quickly, then uh, they lose hope quickly. They get frustrated. They get what they get burned out sometimes. And so it's important to have some perspective and understand that uh, you know the women's suffrage movement took them over 50 years to win women the right to vote, and the social security that we all take for granted. Even Tea Party people think social security is a good thing. Uh, you know, the first social security yeah. law was introduced in Congress by a socialist congressman named Victor Berger in 1911. It took over 25 years to to get social security passed. So uh, after yeah. that, so, you know, so the book was That's written. That's very interesting. Yeah, so I wrote the I wrote the book in part to to both inspire people to think about uh, the future and also to realize uh, that uh, you know there's lessons to be learned from their counterparts in the past. Well, excellent. I'm so glad you did this because, as you're suggesting here, Peter, <clears throat> to know the the shoulders on which we stand today, to know the historical precedents and antecedents gives us, in a sense, we become part of a larger cycle of time, a larger movement. And um, it's also really very affirming because, as you know and I know, as activists of one sort or another, no matter what the area may be, one starts to feel rather alone. That's almost a hallmark of activism. You know, you, of course, group together as a way of sharing the commonality in perspective and values and priorities. But there is a definite sense of aloneness, especially when we cast our eyes back historically, if we do not know who went before us. And I feel your book is 
really helping to lay that foundation, that groundwork for current day, latter day uh, activists to know that uh, they're part of a lineage. And well, interestingly, the lineage goes back even way further. Yes, excuse me? Well, you know, the, um, the, the point you make about being alone, all the people that are in the book were part of movements. They were part of uh, groups of people who worked together. And one of the fascinating yes. things I learned in doing the research for this book is that, you know, today we think of people as being uh, specific on, 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 on certain issues. There are environmental activists. There are union activists. There are women's rights and gay rights activists. There are people yes. involved in but back in the early 1900s and even the mid 19, um, the early 20th century and the mid 20th century, uh, people were involved in progressives and radicals saw the whole system as the problem and they sliced it up into different issues, like I just said, like the women's suffrage. Yes. But many of them, like Jane Addams, for example, was a feminist. She was a socialist. She supported uh, labor unions and used her uh, her meeting place at Hull House, the first settlement house in Chicago, as a place for unions to meet. She won the Nobel Prize for Peace. She opposed World War One. She was a founder of the mm. American Civil Liberties Union. She was a founder of the <coughs> NAACP. And, and, there were, and she wasn't alone. There were lots of people who had lots of overlapping, uh, kind of a web of engagement, yes. participation. And um, I think the Occupy Wall Street movement sort of helps us to see that, you know, the the uh, the battle against corporate power, against the concentration of wealth, uh, unifies people who are interested in environmental issues or economic and poverty issues or, or women's rights issues. We're all sort of confronting the same enemy, which is the, the corporate-dominated political and economic system. And I think uh, that's one of the lessons I think we can learn from the people in the book. Interesting. So are you saying that it sounds, to use a more modern idiom, that the uh, movements uh, around the turn of the century from 19th to 20th were less specialized and you could say more holistic, where they recognized a systemic problem. And are you suggesting that Occupy Wall Street is beginning to re-embrace that larger picture rather than the smaller specializations? Yeah, well, I think if you, you know, I mean, there, there are some problems with Occupy Wall Street. I think it's it has problems with yeah. getting its leadership act together and a little too anarchistic yes. for my taste. But but the message, yes. the message was a unifying message, which was 99% versus the 1%. And, uh, and that, you know, people in the 99% include uh, poor people and middle class people. They include people fighting for women's yes. rights and for gay rights and for union rights and workers' rights and protecting the environment and uh, and other issues that are all being um, pushed uh, against by mostly big business, uh, big corporations, and some of their allies, particularly in the Republican Party, but even some Democrats in, in politics. And so I think yes. you know, the, lessons, the lesson we can learn from the past is is one of solidarity that we need to uh understand that um you know your problem is my problem and my problem is your problem that, and and what that means for example here in Los Angeles where I live uh there's a, a wonderful organization called the LA Alliance for a New Economy and they are fighting to clean up the the 
awful pollution at the Los Angeles port. It's the dirtiest port in the country. And uh, mm. the, people, the people that live around the port, mostly working class uh, families, have extremely high rates of asthma and cancer uh, because the pollution from the port uh, creates all these public health problems. And so you've got, mm. uh, in, in this coalition, you've got labor unions that want to organize the people that work at the port and the truck drivers that take the goods from the port and deliver it to places like Walmart. Uh, you've got the community groups that are concerned about the health of their children. You've got public health groups like the American Lung Association, the National Resources Defense Council, the Sierra Club. In other words, this, this is an unimaginable coalition of some people call it the Blue-Green Alliance, you know, the, the labor mm. union. And the labor unions and the environmental groups and the community groups hey, yeah, like working that. together. The yeah. yes. And and I would say you know and people like people like Eugene Debs and Jane Adams and Walter Ruther, the great uh, auto worker labor leader, and other people that mm-hmm. are in my book, they would they would be smiling right now <laughs> if they if they saw yeah. what's going on to see that kind of coalition building. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, right. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, one of the, I, and I definitely want to, but we we have a little bit of a stretch of time, and I, I am enjoying the way you're selecting some of those hundred to kind of elucidate some of their particular features and contributions to society. Isn't it interesting that the contributions always seem to be, Peter, by those people who are swimming against the tide like a salmon upstream, having to always dig in their heels and go against the flow of the status quo. And I wonder, you've been studying this for so many years, teaching it, been part of it in so many different ways. I'm wondering, do we not as a collective learn anything from history, that may sound like a funny question, but it seems like the same pattern keeps showing up in our country from the beginning and in all other countries, European and others, that in order for anything to happen on behalf of the, of the people, of the larger collective, in this case, let's call it for the moment the 99%, there has to be such a struggle against the few people who somehow or another control the the game and the rules of the game. Well, this has been Why a battle. Ever- what, do you, what do you think is the psychology here? Well, this has been a battle ever since the founding of our country. Uh, you know, most most yeah. of the founding fathers that we revere and that we talk about as the people who you know set up the country and made this a, a great democracy. Many of them were slaveholders. Yeah. They clearly didn't believe that Thomas Jefferson. Didn't, that they didn't, you know, people without originally people without property weren't allowed to vote. Women weren't allowed to vote. African Americans weren't allowed to vote. Um, so the, you know, the Declaration of Independence is an incredibly radical idea. The idea that all people are created equal and are endowed by their Creator yes. with basic rights, and that's a, that's an incredibly radical document. But it, you know, yeah. uh, but it was also fairly a hypocritical document because that's not really the way the founders uh, lived their own lives. But that's okay because you know we were able to we we're people who are inspired by those ideas that equality is, is a basic human right um, have have taken that document and taken some of the 
the founding documents of the country and people like Thomas Paine and use that to promote, you know, the constant improvement of our society. And so, you know, over time, over the last several centuries, you know, uh, women have gotten the right to vote, non-property owners have gotten the right to vote, African-Americans have gotten the right to vote, uh, younger people have gotten the right to vote. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a hundred years ago, um, if you had asked somebody, uh, what do you think of the idea of having a minimum wage or having senior citizens have old age insurance or uh, having a progressive income tax or having laws protecting consumers from unsafe consumer products and medicines and toys and, and, and uh, having laws protecting the environment from pollution, uh, having laws protecting workers from unsafe and dangerous workplaces – uh, people would have thought you were crazy, you were uh, a utopian, you were out of touch with reality, you might even be a communist <laughs> or a socialist, right? All of those yes. ideas that I just said are now things that we take for granted. These, so yes. one, of the, one of the themes of the book is that the radical ideas of one generation are often the common sense ideas of the next generation. And so yes. it is true that the people in my book were swimming against the tide but then they changed the tide. They changed the direction yes. of the country. And um, if you look at the polls that happened right after uh, Occupy Wall Street, you find that, that over 75% of the people in the country think that big corporations have too much power, that they don't pay enough in taxes. Um, and, and even Republicans agree with that, that big corporations yes. have too much power. So. Uh, yes. so one thing is, I, I I believe that most people have common sense, and that um, mm-hmm. you know, and and that most Americans understand that although we live in a democracy, our political system and our economic system is skewed in favor of the very wealthy. Most, even Tea Party people get that. So the question is, yes. how do you build a movement uh, to challenge that? I don't I don't think it's just the realm of ideas that. That uh, where we need to, to focus. We need to focus on how people organize, use their talents, their skills uh, to build a movement or to build uh, struggles for uh, challenging the power of the, of the 1%. I, I actually think that most Americans understand that we need a more, uh, a more democratic and, and humane society, but they don't know exactly how to get there. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's funny. You're speaking about this, and the uh, Occupy movement just came in good activist style, Peter, prior to our show. I went to the farmer's market at Union Square. Maybe you'll make a comment about the the union leadership history of Union Square. And uh, to the farmer's market, and there was a small table with the Occupy Wall Street uh, logo and and, – some pamphlets and stuff like that and I see this every week actually and it's it's a little sad because it's like what began with the roar is now a fairly small thin voice. Well, and, you know what, Mitch, yes, I, I don't agree with that. I think I I think that um Well, I'm just so, saying I don't mean necessarily nationally, but as it shows up in New York City, what it was now, what it was when it began and what it looks like now is a is a pale shadow. That's all. Except that, um, I, I, and not to say that they're not building underneath. They may well be, 
but it's not apparent. But please well, comment. What I want to know what you have to think. So in October so, of last year, you know, it's September actually, um, yes. by, you know, by surprise, uh, a few hundred people show up at Zuccotti Park down near Wall Street. Uh, yeah. It's a big risk, just like the people that had been involved in the sit-ins in the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement. They thought, okay, we're going to try yeah. this. We don't know exactly where this is going. And the idea spread so that almost every city in the country had an Occupy movement of some kind. And even mm-hmm. though within, uh, within about three months, most of the people occupying particular spaces here in Los Angeles, it was outside the city hall. Uh, in Wall Street, it was the park. But in other cities, it was other places. The, even though they were yeah. evicted from their, from their uh, Occupy locations, they changed the national conversation. Uh, within a matter of a few months, I did a little research yes. a couple articles about it. Within a few months, every newspaper in America, every television show, and some radio shows were talking about inequality. They were talking about corporate greed and corporate power. They were talking about the richest 1% and how much of the economy they own. They were talking about the abuses of Wall Street and the uh, the fraudulent mortgages and the, uh, the 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 epidemic of foreclosures that were caused by abusive banking practices. The whole conversation in the country, in workplaces, in churches and synagogues, in neighborhoods, and in newsrooms, had changed. And so, even though Occupy Wall Street no longer occupied literally the places that they were um, they were they were taking over physically, they yes. were occupying yes. our minds. And other yes. groups, labor unions and community organizations like National People's Action and others, uh, filled the vacuum. And so right now, all across America, there are organizing groups fighting uh, to, to stop foreclosures, to, to improve working conditions, to improve environmental conditions. The media don't always report on them because the, the circus of the election is more interesting to cover than the yes. organizing, unless there's a big strike yes. or something, and they cover it. But sure. so I think the Occupy movement was kind of kind of laid the foundation for a new wave of and a new energy of political activism in America. And even though probably no more than a hundred thousand people literally occupied any space in the course of those few months, um, they had an enormous impact on the rest of society, on public opinion on news coverage, and they made it possible, for example, a few months ago, the, all the attorney, most of the attorney generals in the different states signed an agreement with the five big banks to, um, uh, to basically have reparations, you know, billions of dollars of reparations uh, for homeowners who were losing their homes because of fraudulent mortgages. And I don't think the attorney generals of the United States would have been able to negotiate uh, with, from a position of strength against uh, J.P. Morgan and, and Bank of America and the other and Wells Fargo, the other big banks, without the Occupy movement having happened a couple months earlier. And I could give you lots of other examples of of, uh, of victories for the people that have happened not uh, not waged by Occupy Wall Street but inspired and made possible by Occupy Wall Street. And, and in some ways that's the theme of my book, is that the, the organizing that takes place builds a momentum for change 
that you know that we now take for granted on women's rights, on environmental issues, on labor rights. You know, we don't always win everything. Sometimes we have to compromise. Sometimes there are setbacks. There's always setbacks. But the as Martin Luther King said, the arc of of history bends towards justice, and I think that's the that's the history of this country. And unless we understand um, that the things we now take for granted, better food, better medicine, uh, people being able to send their kids to college, all these things, you know, that have uh, changed over the last century, they weren't brought to us as a gift or as charity from the the richest people and the most powerful people. They were things that people struggled for and won as victories. And uh, and that tradition is still going on. So the last chapter of my book is called The 21st Century So Far. And it talks about some of the younger uh, activists today who are uh, continuing this tradition of social justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, wholly agree with you about the the effect of the Occupy Wall Street movement, by the way. I, I wasn't commenting on that. I was just saying what it looks like now at, of all places, Union Square, which was the, the hub of so much social activism over the course of, uh, you know, 100-plus years in New York. Um, it, it settled down to what appears, and I really use that word appears as a whimper because I have no idea what's behind the scenes because it always, I always get the impression that there's something cooking behind the scenes that hasn't broken through just yet. But in terms of its actual effect, even during that short period of time that you cited, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Even the movement was rather generic in many respects. It had a major impact, and it did show up in the media across the board, as you suggested, not just in the liberal media, so to speak, but everywhere. And it had some very palpable effects. I mean, just to be specific, I remember one story, Peter, that took place in Minnesota where there was a woman who was being evicted from her house because of foreclosure, and a group from Minneapolis went to the suburbs where she lived, and they occupied her house, and they called, I believe it was Bank of America, and they said, guess what? This house is occupied, and you are not taking it. If you want to discuss new terms, we're We'd be glad to. And uh, this woman was being interviewed on, uh, you know, a progressive uh, TV show that I'm familiar with, and her house got saved for her. And she's so not the only one. But a, there are there are people all over the country who resisted yeah. eviction by these banks yes. and by the sheriffs. And there's a national organization called the Home Defenders League, which was created about a year ago. Uh, yes. Which is, you know, not part of the Occupy movement, but part of the spirit of the Occupy movement. And yes. here in Los Angeles, there were uh, quite a few people who, again, you know, these are ordinary people. These are not radicals or activists who thought they were yes. being unfairly evicted from their homes, and they joined with other people in community groups and some unions and and some of the Occupy folks to say, you know, we're going to link arms in front of this woman's house or in front of this man's house. These were, you yes. know, ordinary people, and we're not, you know, these are people that worked hard to own this house. They got ripped off, and they're not going to, yes. they're not going to, they're not going to allow them to be evicted. And, you know, in most cases, the sheriff backed down, 
and the bank, as you just described in Minneapolis, renegotiated the uh, renegotiated the mortgage. And so, what does that mean? It means we need a we need a federal law um, that's called that will require the banks to reduce the principal of, uh, of mortgages so that the people are, are not paying mortgages that are more expensive than the worth of their house. Exactly. And, and there exactly. are community organizations all over the country that are pushing for, for both state and federal laws to make Congress uh, and state legislatures uh, enact that, that idea that people should yes. – uh, that, that yeah. people who whose homes uh, lost their value or who were unable to pay their mortgage through no fault of their own because of the fraudulent mortgages – Foisted upon them Correct. by the banking uh, industry, they should be uh, they should be protected, and um, and the Occupy movement helped to create the, the the new mood of the country that made that kind of uh, resistance yep. possible. You bet. I well put, and I, I'm in complete accord with that, and with the what the movement represents. Let's let everybody know you are listening to. A Better World on Blog Talk Radio. This is Mitchell J. Rabin, your host. Please go to our website to learn more about what we do on radio and on TV out of New York City every week at www.abetterworld.tv. Join our newsletter and become part of A Better World's community. And we are activists and we are progressive thinkers and we are writers and we are doing all we can to educate, uplift, and inspire to create the kind of world we all really feel is possible. We are spending the hour today with Peter Dreyer, who is an author, teacher, historian. He is the E.P. Clapp Distinguished Professor of Politics and Chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. And he's been a journalist, community organizer, government official in uh, the Boston mayoral office for a number of years and has written a book, which is the focus of today's dialogue, The Hundred Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, a Social Justice Hall of Fame. Yes, it, it's so good. I just want to reiterate um, what I feel is the psychological and sociological value of the book that you've put forth here to have a compendium, if you will, Peter, of great minds, some well-known, some not, and uh, some behind the scenes, but actively, diligently, and persistently working for the betterment of man and the betterment of his and her positions uh, in our society in the United States is uh, it's memorable and I think it helps to advance the conversation. From that point of view, what do you think? Do you think that the social movements are as active as they used to be? Do you think that they are um, about, let's say, back at the time of the formation of the labor movement, or do you feel it's more active now? How would you measure that? Well, it's, you know, there's no, um, there's no yardstick for measuring each movement separately. But, for example, um, back at the turn of the century, uh, almost every gay person was in the closet. And, um, yes. and the first uh, one of the people in my book is a man named Harry Hay, who was the founder of the first gay rights organization in the country back in 1950 called the, the Madison Society. Um, and back in the 1950s, you know, gay people were considered mentally 
uh, mentally ill, the American Psycho- Psychological and Psychiatric Associations, define homosexuality yeah. as, a, as a mental illness. And uh, and they were uh, always harassed by the cops and gay bars and gay meeting places. Um, uh, the federal government would not hire uh, gay people if they knew they were gay. The military wouldn't mm-hmm. hire them. Um, you know, and then you know, only 10 years ago, just 10 years ago, the idea of same-sex marriage uh, was not even people. The pollsters didn't even ask questions about it. It was so out of the box, as we say today. It was not an idea that anybody yeah. was taking seriously. Uh-huh. You know, the gay rights movement started in the 70s, really, the, the, the new wave of gay activism around AIDS and discrimination. But gay marriage was not on the table. And now more than half of all Americans think that gay marriage is fine. The President of the United States says that he supports gay marriage, that uh, many states now have laws uh, in favor of gay marriage. How did this happen over, you know, it seems like almost overnight. It happened because there were movements uh, that made uh, made it possible to, to for gay people to feel comfortable coming out of the closet and then asserting their rights. And it changed public opinion. Uh, you know, there's, there's gay athletes, there's gay actors on television and in the movies. I mean, you know, there's still a long way to go to promote uh, equality. But, you know, so sure. there was a that, this is a movement that, you know, in the last decade has made enormous strides that, you know, did, that barely existed 50 or 60 years ago. And, and so that's, that's an example of, of a movement that, you know, has just taken off. The, the labor movement, which began in the, after the Civil War, and had its strongest period uh, during the 1930s and 40s. In the 19, by the 1950s, a third of all the workers in the United States were members of unions. Well, since then, that number has declined to about 11% today. And yet, if you look at public opinion polls, more than half of all the employees in the United States would like to be in a union. They believe that mm. they need a voice at work. But only 11% are. Why is that? Because our laws governing uh, the rights of workers to unionize are so skewed in favor of management that it's very yes. difficult for uh, workers, particularly in the private sector, to organize without being afraid of getting fired, which is illegal. But a lot of companies hire union-busting consultants, and they fire people that wear a union button to work or whatever, and yet there are incredible, still, there are union organizing drives in this country around nurses and janitors and farm workers and, and people that work at stores like Walmart that is, that is making progress. And so, as I said earlier, um, if you just look at a snapshot of the state of progressivism in America right now, um, it may not look all that... Um, all that bold and and all that robust, but you know, three years from now, you look back, and um, and you might see an enormous change. I mean, one one. Let me just give you one example of that. If if, if in 1959, you know, you had asked uh, sociologists or historians or political scientists or journalists, you know, what's going on in American campuses these days? Oh, you know, it's the Eisenhower era and the Cold War, and most American college students, they just want to join fraternities and sororities and get a good job and live in the suburbs. You know, a year later, the sit-ins broke out in the South. And within the matter of a few years, there was a widespread student protest movement, civil rights protest movement. Nobody predicted this. It happened 
you know, uh, it happened behind the backs of most of the experts. And so, you know, you never know what's bubbling below the surface unless exactly. you're, you're engaged. And I think right now, you know, there's a lot of a lot of energy just below the surface that I think is going to uh, burst out, particularly if Obama gets reelected and, and there's a, a sense of possibility. Yes. I hear you. I, I, I think that's a very good point. The, bu- the bubbling below the surface is, I think, really key in understanding the way history is shaped, actually, because there are multiple conversations taking place at once, and it appears to be one thing, and it is true that power does shift from one side to another uh, over time, but it's nice to think that there's an overall, and you've cited examples, of an overall movement toward uh, greater equity, greater justice. Certainly um, at the Democratic Convention just now, I I heard uh, the woman from Alabama who is responsible for what sounded like the first piece of legislation that passed in the Obama administration uh, for equal pay between... um, the, the Letty Ledbetter Act. Exactly, Letty yeah. Ledbetter Act. Uh, she was speaking about it, and here is an, another example. Look how many years from the, the suffrage movement commencing to now it took for equal pay to become legislated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yet yeah. it keeps moving in that direction. On the other hand, in this very same administration, we had the passage of something that didn't even get passed in the uh, Bush years, which is the National Defense Authorization Act, which allows very much against the Constitution and everything that we understand as habeas corpus and the right of due process, anyone anywhere on the planet could actually be fingered and indefinitely detained. Now, Chris Hedges and... um, a few others have contested this. They've sued the federal government, and they've won in getting that um, that uh, clause in the document in the legislation repealed, and we have yet to see. But there has been, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, Peter. When you think about Eisenhower's Republican position, and then you look at the Republicans today, and you look at the Democrats today, it looks to me, and I really want to hear your opinion, that there has been a radical shift to the right, not to the left, that the Democratic uh, Party has become centrist to be kind about it, and the entire country has moved far to the right. What do you think about that? I don't agree with that. Um... The Republican Party has definitely moved to the right. There's a wonderful new book uh, by uh, Thomas Mann and Norman Ornstein called It's Even Worse Than It Looks. And uh, it's about how the Republican Party, uh, under the influence of, of uh, both big corporations and, um, and some of the, the, the right-wing billionaires like the, the Koch brothers and uh, Sheldon Adelson and others, They've, you know, they've moved the Republican Party so far to the right that that Eisenhower would be considered a liberal. Uh, That's my Republican. point exactly. He'd yeah. Probably be kicked out, and many of the moderate Republicans, particularly the ones from New England, 
uh, and the Northeast have abandoned the Republican Party, or they just, you know, somebody like Olympia Snow, who was a moderate Republican from Maine in the Senate, she said, I'm not going to run for re-election anymore because I just can't stand the the, the direction right. the Republican Party is moving in. On the other hand, the Democratic Party is more complicated. The Democratic Party is made up of several different wings that, you know, that don't agree with each other. And um, yeah. like I said, you know, there's no way a president of the United States would even Bill Clinton back in the 90s would have supported same-sex marriage. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Barack Obama has been, you know, an advocate of uh, of universal health care and, uh, and, and a much more progressive version than even Bill Clinton proposed. Not as progressive as what I would like to see, which is a more Canadian-style single-payer system. But nevertheless... You and me both. But nevertheless... And millions you know, of others. You yeah. know, the... The health care bill that passed in 2010, uh, which was fought by the pharmaceutical industry and by the insurance companies and, and by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, it was amazing that they passed anything. And, you know, Obama mm-hmm. needs to get some credit for that. I think that the health care bill is as important a milestone in American history as Social Security or the women's right to vote. It really has moved America you know, to catch up with the whole rest of the world, which has you know, some ver- every other major democratic country has some version of universal health insurance, including even South Africa. So um, yeah. I, I think, you know, the country can move to the left, to the right, and the center all at the same time, right? It's, there's no, there's not one thing. The Democratic Party has all the progressives in it. You know, it has all the labor activists, all the environmental and feminist activists. It has most of the gay rights activists in it. It has most of the people concerned about poverty in it. And it also has, you know, some of the worst corporate lobbyists and, and powerful business interests that uh, retard progress. And so, you know, yes. it, it, I wouldn't I wouldn't paint the Democratic Party with with one with one brush. It's 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 more complicated than that. And and Much let more. me just tell you one story that's in my book. Back in the nineteen thirties during the Depression, uh a group of uh Progressive activists met with Franklin, President Franklin Roosevelt in the Oval Office, and they were trying to get him to support some pieces of legislation that would, you know, move America in a more progressive direction. And Roosevelt, mm-hmm. he listened very carefully, uh, and then um, allegedly he said at the end of this meeting, at the end after listening, he said, "You know what? I agree with everything you just said. I'm completely on board <laughs> with what you just said. Now go out and make me do it." <laughs> so what, right. what did he mean by that? He meant it's a great that, story. It's a know, great story. Yeah. You know, what do you? What did he mean? He meant that that the president of the United States has a lot of power, but I can't change public opinion. I can't lobby the Congress on my own. By myself. Right. You right. need to go out and create the the political climate by protesting and by taking over factories and by organizing people so that uh, I look more moderate so that your radical ideas can help me push this agenda. And Obama, I thought, as a community organizer, would understand that lesson. But um, his top advisors, who don't didn't come out of community organizing, particularly his economic advisors, didn't understand that. And uh, it, was, it took two years into the Obama administration, uh, particularly when he was pushing the health care bill, when he finally realized, you know, maybe having these people on the ground these protesters around health care reform sitting in at insurance companies, protesting in front of the, the houses of the CEOs 
of the major uh, insurance companies that were lobbying against the health care bill uh, and embarrassing the insurance companies for their, you know, the outrageous profits and, and the huge bonuses they were playing to their top executives while denying sick people insurance. Maybe we need some of that Saul Alinsky-type organizing to make it possible so, to pass a health care bill uh, and, to, and, to, and to make the, the insurance industry and the drug companies, they're the ones that are fighting against uh, this social progress. And so I think that America today reflects both the power of corporate money and, and campaign contributions and with the Citizens United decision in the Supreme Court, it's even worse than it was 10 years ago. But it also reflects this bubbling up from the bottom of movements for justice, and America is always uh, a work in progress. And so I, I don't well, think it's, yes. I don't think it's true that America is moving to the the American people are moving to the right. I do think it's true that there is a, a wing of the Tea Party and the Republican Party and big business that would like to see America move to the right and is doing everything they can to dismantle some of the great prog- progressive legislation that we've seen passed from Social Security to the minimum wage to, uh, to health care reform. Well, I would agree with that. That's for sure. But I also think that there are sections of the Democratic Party that are actually working in the same way because they are eating out of the same corporate coffers. So we're not going to agree on that because, you know, you're going to get a zigzag of change. So that I'm sure we agree on, that, yes, you may get um, an improvement in gay rights, in equal pay for men and women. You will see some of that, but you will also see Obama calling for uh, the building of a new 40 new nuclear plants, even after Fukushima, even though the science shows this is not the way to go. The science shows that renewable energies is the way to go. Business is even, I mean, more, let's say, more liberal, progressive thinking businessmen, entrepreneurs are proving in Germany and elsewhere, even here, that wind and solar, geothermal, tidal wave technology, etc., are very much the long-term sustainable way. But yet, Obama is still stuck on nuclear plants, which is about as conservative, I I don't even like using that word, I'll just say right-wing, as it gets. So I guess the best we could say is that there's a zigzag in every administration. I personally like to think that there is a continued progressive movement with breakdowns and with, uh, you know, backpedaling from here and there. But and I think that your book also does show an overall trend that there is a humanizing, if you will, and an increasing level of justice in many areas of American life that is occurring through social movements over time. Not only that, the social movements are our only way to get our voices across, pretty much. Uh, Could you comment on that? Well, there are three kinds of people in my book. There are the organizers and activists that built uh, the movements from the bottom up, the labor movement, people like Eugene Debs, 
uh, people like Betty Friedan and the women's movement, uh, yeah. uh, people like Saul Alinsky, uh, a guy named Miles Horton, Jane Adams, you know, people who were in the streets organizing people uh, and, uh, and building movements. The second group of people were politicians uh, who were allies of these movements in Congress, in the mayor's offices, in state legislators, uh, and and uh, and a few presidents, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, mm-hmm. and Lyndon Johnson are all in the book because they were uh, in 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 different ways they were espousing the values of these movements sometimes reluctantly. I mean, uh, but they were also flawed. I mean, the the people yes. who who uh, are politicians are, are are often you know not. Uh, not totally in uh, in support of everything that the progressive movements want. Lyndon Johnson, who supported you know anti-poverty yeah. legislation and Medicare and Medicaid and lots of civil rights. And civil rights, you know, was uh, they couldn't have passed the civil rights bill without his political skill. He, you know, he also supported the war in Vietnam. Then there's a chapter exactly in the introduction of my book. I say all the people in my book are they're heroes, but Flawed. they're not saints. And, that's and the right. No, I think people, that's a very valuable chapter. Right. Yeah. And the third, the third group of people in my book are, uh, are, are writers and artists and journalists and photographers and musicians, uh, people like yeah. Paul Robeson and Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and, right. and today uh-huh. terms, uh, Tony Kushner, uh, and uh, and they inspired us with their ideas. They gave us hope that the, a better world was possible. They they yeah. they made us feel empowered by their their writing and their singing, and um, and I think that uh, all movements need all kinds of people to participate, and uh, and and there's no moment in history where everything was perfect, and so you know, right. your critique of Obama, I don't totally disagree with it, but I also think we have to put it in some perspective. If Mitt Romney mm-hmm. and Paul Ryan get elected president, they're going to appoint yes. the Supreme Court justices that are going to turn back the clock. On women's rights, yes. on gay rights, on workers' rights, they're they're basically yeah. totally corporate-dominated politicians, and, um, yes. and so I think it's important that privatize we realize that Medicare, privatize Social yes. Security, continue to privatize the prisons. Yeah, right. I'm just corroborating so, your so, point. So, so for so for all you know, for all the cri- criticism that progressives might have of some of the things Obama did. You know, it's not it's not like it's the lesser of two evils. We're talking about apples and oranges. Barack Obama yes. and the Democratic Party, for all their flaws, are nevertheless the likely uh, heirs of the people that I talk about in my book and are yes. going to move the country. If, if there is a movement from the bottom, they are the kind of people who – will be the allies of that movement, even if they do so sometimes reluctantly. If Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan get elected, the movements for social justice will be completely shut out without any voice at all um, of the in the corridors of political power. I'm afraid you're right. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a scary prospect. There's no question about it. Um, that's how I also felt when Bush was running against Gore and then against Kerry, I felt that way. Right, so, right. You know, and the there are for people like us, Peter. You know, but there are people in my book who I talk about in the Hundred Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, who still inspire us and think that to think about a better world. I mean, you 
know, one of the That's people. That's right. Said, Martin Luther King is one of them, and yes, you and know, another one. Very that, obviously. You know, one of the, what, yeah. One of the people in my book that's not as well known, who's very well, there are a couple of people in my book who were well known, but they're not as, they're not well known for their radical politics. One of them is Albert Einstein, the great scientist. Another one is yes. Helen Keller, who's mo- mostly well known yes. for being blind. But Another one is Linus Pauling, actually, correct? Yeah. Yes, and and uh, and the one I, the one that gets the most surprising responses from most people is uh, Dr. Seuss, whose real name is Oh Peter yes. Guy. Please tell us about Dr. Seuss. You know, yeah. Doc, Dr. Seuss, his real name is Theodore Geisel. Uh, people don't know this about him. In the 1940s, no. he was an editorial cartoonist for a left-wing uh, newspaper in New York called PM. It doesn't exist anymore. It only existed for a little more than a decade. But it was, you know, it was very much, it was in some ways had the same politics as a magazine like The Nation. It was a daily newspaper, and he was the mm-hmm. editorial cartoonist where he skewered, you know, bigots and and fascists and Hitler and Mussolini and the American counterparts yeah. of Mussolini, people like Father Coughlin, the right wing radio priest, and and uh, uh-huh. Charles Lindbergh, who was famous for being an aviator, but also was an anti semite and a and a sympathizer yeah. to Hitler. And then when he started writing his children's books, um, his books reflected not all of them, but many of them, his his political views. So the 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 book uh, Yertle the Turtle uh, is about Hitler and about bullies and about authoritarianism and how interesting how ordinary yeah. people the turtles at the bottom of the of the heap have to speak out and have rights too and another one of his books was the Lorax which was about the corporate plunder of the environment and how we have to speak out against uh, the rape of our of our environment by big business. Yeah. And another one of his books, one of my favorite books, was called The Butter Battle Book, uh, which you know I read to my kids. And uh, it was, uh-huh. you know, it is a book about the nuclear arms race. It's about two sides of people on two sides of a fence who are trying to outdo each other to build bigger and bigger weapons. And he points out how absurd that is. And the, his yes. famous book, The Sneetches, is really about anti-Semitism and how we stereotype people. And so, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know many Americans, you know, he's the most popular children's author in the history of the world. More God, more popular than, than the Brothers Grimm, more popular than Aesop. You know, his, his books have sold millions and millions of copies in many different languages. And one of the themes that uh, is throughout his books, is the importance of teaching children to stand up to arbitrary authority, to challenge the status quo, to think about social justice. But he does it in a very subtle uh, way so that we mostly think of Dr. Seuss as a, as a writer who writes, uh, who teaches children about vocabulary, who, to, who gets yes. them to enjoy reading, who, uh, sure. who has these wonderful uh, drawings that are, that are innovative yep. and, and clever. But in between the lines, he's also teaching children about social justice. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, you've done an excellent job in illuminating history from the point of view of the progressive movement, Peter. And uh, I think it's a, a real contribution to American literature for us to fall back on, to reflect on, to recognize, as you put it at the beginning, on what shoulders we stand, what antecedents historically we have, 
to rely upon and to help push us forward and realize that we're one of a larger trend. And the point about patience, I think, was one of the salient points. I really appreciate that. And it seems like, uh, you know, impatience is a characteristic of youth, and yet we're all somewhat youthful. So uh, I want to just thank you for your good work and uh, bringing that forward. I enjoy talking to you, Mitch. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure, Peter. Do you have a website people can uh, go visit if they'd like more information? 100greatestamericans.org. There we go. Excellent. And your book is also listed on our website. Uh, we have an Amazon link there directly to your book if people want to pick that up or any of your others. So I, I want to thank you again for being a guest on the show today and talking with thank us. Thank you. Absolutely. That was Peter Dreyer, the author of the book we spent the uh, show discussing, The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, a Social Justice Hall of Fame. And he goes through a very difficult, winnowing process of who are those 100 Americans because really we're dealing with thousands of Americans who have made such contributions over time to our country growing and evolving from infancy, literally infancy, from a zygote on the way, all the way to what we have today from what has become the greatest militaristic power at moments also the greatest economic power and is now going through a bit of an identity crisis, I think, in shaping its future. And I think it's a very healthy moment in many respects. And uh, I would like to see us all more involved in a process of contributing to the larger good for our country and not to limit it to that at all, but to the planet. That's why my show is called A Better World. And I so appreciate all of you who participate through receiving our weekly newsletter, through our uh, my writings at Huffington Post and naturalnews.com. And I want to really encourage you all to go and also, if you are interested in um, being a sponsor of A Better World, we have uh, uh, various arrangements of sponsorship of A Better World, both on radio and TV, and would encourage any of you to participate, as well as I am available for other people's shows as well, a, as a holistically oriented psychotherapist, as a progressive thinker, as a teacher and consultant of stress management, of helping to shape a new world. That's what I'm about. That's what A Better World here under my auspices is about. Socially conscious investing, socially responsible businesses, those with a sense of conscience and one of sustainability. That's our game here at A Better World. That's what I do here for a better world on Blog Doc Radio, as well as on a better world TV, aired in New York City every Tuesday night at 10:30 Eastern Daylight Time. Although that time may be moving sometime in the near future, so please stay tuned 
and become part of what we've got here as a better world. This is Mitchell J. Rabin. Thanks again for joining us. So appreciate it, and I look forward to speaking with you all next week.